0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, death and the second coming of Jesus Christ. A couple of topics here that provoke questions and challenges and discussion um, may raise significant issues even for Christians as we ponder death and the return of Jesus Christ. Put yourself now in the place of Believers who are new in the faith 2,000 years ago, the Thessalonian Christians, as they are new to uh, learning the the doctrines that they are being taught and beginning to understand the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ as new believers. And you can imagine the, the level of questions they might have about death, what happens What happens with the return of Jesus Christ? And so this morning we're going to finish chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 13, through the end of the chapter. And then we're going to start chapter 5 up through verse 11. And both sections are instructions. They are Paul seemingly responding to concerns, to questions about the return of Christ, death, the day of the Lord. And he is instructing them about how to think about these things. They knew that they had believed in a Savior who died and who rose again. They knew the essence of the gospel, that Jesus died in their place, a sacrificial death, that he rose again and that he ascended to heaven. And they were also being taught then that he will return, that he had promised his disciples that he would come back for them. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And so uh, they are learning about who the Savior is and how He is going to return for them. Jesus repeatedly spoke of His coming again, even in His final words that are recorded to Peter in John 21. He is speaking again about His second coming. So the Thessalonian believers understood that this Savior they were trusting in would return for them, but that provokes some questions. How that looks, what happens, how, how all that fits, in particular two questions. One that seems to surround an issue that caused them some sorrow. One of the questions was causing them sorrow. The other one, confusion. The first one related to sorrow was the question of what, what about believers who die before Jesus returns? There have been believers who've come to faith. They are rejoicing in their faith. But time has passed. We presume months, maybe a year at this point from the time that Paul has planted the church, left under persecution, gone to Athens, sent Timothy back, ministered to the church. Timothy comes back with a report. Paul sends a letter. We're presuming months, maybe a year has passed, and so in that time, maybe due to persecution, maybe due to natural causes, there are some who came to faith in Christ who then died. The question now for these remaining believers is, so we know we're supposed to expect Jesus to return, what about them? What about those who have been dead and buried? Is there there a disadvantage for them? How do they participate in that? What what is their place in all of this? And so they are grieving this, Paul seems to indicate in this passage. Second question was really one of timing. The timing of something in particular described in chapter 5 as the day of the Lord, They had been taught, we'll see from Paul, they had been taught about this day of the Lord. It goes back to the Old Testament prophets, and it is a time of God's judgment on the unbelieving world. It is something that is prophesied by the prophets as something to come when God pours out wrath on the unbelieving world. And so the Thessalonians now, as they're going through life, they're facing persecution. Their world is getting hard, and some of them are starting to wonder, are we... In this day of the Lord, are we part of this period? How will this period affect us? Are we delivered from that? And and so Paul addresses these questions in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and in both instances, what he does is he provides some substantial teaching. Here's the instruction that explains the answer to your grieving, and also that explains the response to your confusion about the day of the Lord. And he ends both sections in the same way. He ends by saying, therefore, and if you look at chapter 4, verse 18, at the end of the first section, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Then he teaches about the day of the Lord, and he comes back in 5.11 and says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I think this is really important that we see this as his therefores, as his application of all this teaching before we even set out on it, because I think it helps guide our thinking in this. The last six verses of chapter four and the first 11 verses of chapter five, that whole section contains just three imperative verbs, in in, in other words, commands, do this, and they are in these two verses that we've just read. Twice, therefore, encourage one another. And then the last one is build one another up. So, the key exhortation in light of this teaching about the return of Jesus Christ is to use the instruction you've been given to encourage other believers. The key purpose, Paul says, in coming to this understanding about the return of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord and God's judgment is so that you might use this instruction to encourage one another and build one another up. Remember that when we start at chapter 4, kind of that transition point in the letter, it's that point when he says, listen, you are walking in a way that is pleasing God. Now do so more and more, right? Excel still more. Do so in other areas of your life. Examine your life and see more areas where you can please God. Do so in your work. Do so in your relationships in terms of of, of sex, how you look at sex. We've talked about sexual purity. And so here, you may please God more and more by encouraging one another, by coming alongside and ministering to one another, by taking God's truths, applying them to your own life, and then encouraging one another. Encouraging one another is not always the first application we tend to think of when we focus in on teaching about the end times. When it comes to the end times and and what this looks like and what Jesus will do, how his return will look and what what these events are, there is a tendency to to think about sort of debates and questions and, and, and chronologies and maybe even charts and other good stuff. And Paul puts this all under the heading of, listen, I'm teaching you this so that you'll encourage one another. The technical name for the category of theology that focuses in on the end times, on the return of Christ, and all that's included in that is eschatology. It's the study of last things. What happens at death? There's personal eschatology. What happens to the soul when when a person dies? And then there's general eschatology. What happens to the world when Jesus returns? What is the future? What are the last things? And unfortunately, there are competing systems of eschatology. Theologians don't always agree about the things that, that will take place in the end or what the order might be, what, how the Bible seems to lay out the end times. And so it's not unusual for the study of last things to ultimately come to some application in terms of a debate, you know, trying to resolve this issue. That's why I wanted to start with the beginning and point us to the therefore. Because the therefore says, this is what I want you to do with this. I want you to encourage one another with this. I want you to take this teaching and I want you to live it out and be a source of encouragement to others and remind them that our Savior is coming back, that we have this hope and he will come and he will judge as well the wickedness in the world. Rest in that. The king is returning. Even more importantly... As he will tell us in this passage, our Savior is coming back for his people. He is coming back to take his people to be with them. That is our great hope. Spoken of in Titus 2.13, after urging believers to live holy lives, says we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is our hope what we look forward to, why we're, we're living day to day is with that, that ultimate hope in Christ. So here's what we're going to see this morning. We are to grow in pleasing God by encouraging one another, specifically by taking this teaching about the return of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord and using it to minister encouragement to one another, particularly in the areas of comfort and caution. Last part of chapter 4, we'll deal with the comfort part. and the beginning of chapter 5, we'll deal with the caution part. It all ties up, though, in this encourage one another. We've talked about this before. The Greek word for encourage, parakaleo, para meaning alongside, kaleo to call. The word is basically an invitation. It is come walk with me. Come stand with me. Come be alongside me. And so when the New Testament speaks of that word to encourage, it it should give us that picture of sort of a a side-by-side nature of of holding one another up and encouraging one another and spurring one another on. We can encourage by text and by email in our our day and age, but I do think the picture of the New Testament is even a little bit more personal sometimes. It is that, that closeness that comes And it may include correction. It may include comfort. It may be coming alongside to urge, to exhort. The context often specifies exactly how it looks. But this is the essence of what we do as Christians. We come alongside one another to speak God's truth to each other in order to provide wisdom to those who are confused and comfort to those who are hurting and exhortation to those who are struggling in sin. The return of Jesus Christ is meant to be one of those sources of encouragement. This doctrine that we read this morning is to be some of the material that we use to encourage one another. So let's read the first section. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Jesus Christ is coming back for his people. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with this truth for the purpose of bringing them comfort. There were grieving Thessalonians. Some of these believers had come to faith in Christ. Some of their loved ones who had also come to faith in Christ had died in the interim period. Whether, again, it was by persecution or natural cause, some had died, and so those who are left behind are now concerned with what happened, what happens in particular to those deceased loved ones when Jesus Christ returns. They've been taught to await this this coming Savior, but when he does, he comes for us, but what about those who are in the tombs, who have already been buried? Is there something for them? What takes place for those who are already dead and buried when Jesus returns? verse, all these verses, 13, 14, 15, all use the phrase fallen asleep. The euphemism for falling asleep, sleep as death, goes way back, including in the first century. They understood that the, the body, when it is dead, when it is lifeless, looks like it is asleep. And so it is a euphemism to picture the body. This is not a description of the soul's existence. This is not arguing for soul sleep, that somehow the person sort of enters limbo or enters an unconscious state that is not at all the case. What it's talking about is the soul leaves the body, the body becomes lifeless, and it it has the appearance of sleep. It is in repose at that point. In fact, verse 14 even makes it clear that when Jesus comes, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. To, To counter any notion that that the soul has somehow passed into sleep, it even makes it clear that God's going to bring them with him because when they died, the soul immediately passed into the presence of God. Those who have died trusting in Jesus Christ continue in this conscious existence. They are now in the presence of God. As Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord, right? So the soul... Continues in this existence, it is the body that has the appearance of sleep, and it's the body now that is talked about being raised at this point. The thrust, though, of Paul's message is really clear right from the get go, and that is I don't want you to grieve like the rest of the world grieves. I don't want you to be in sorrow like unbelievers are. He's not ruling out sorrow or grief. He's not saying when someone dies, there isn't a sense of grief, but what he's saying is your grief should not be like those who are without Christ. As those who have no hope, because those who die in Christ are with Him. And when Jesus Christ returns, they will return with Him. His emphasis here is there is no disadvantage for those who have died before. Those that you are concerned about, you need not grieve as if they were unbelievers or as if acting as if you are an unbeliever. Don't grieve that way because they have simply gone before into his presence, and when he comes, they will come with him, and we will be reunited. We will all be joined together in the air with him. Just a few observations about this passage. Um, First one is just this teaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ is seen frequently from Jesus' own teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, of course, all the way through the book of Revelation. Typically, the, the Greek word that is used is parousia. It has the idea of a coming often used in Greek culture of the idea of a dignitary who appears, whose anticipated arrival is now happening, and that's what's used throughout the New Testament to speak of what is coming next for Christ. Parousia is repeatedly used to speak of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He will return. He will arrive. It is what we look forward to. The the parousia of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, from all appearances in in Scripture, is the, the next thing. On God's calendar. I grew up in one of those churches that every headline was a sign. You know, there was always something happening, and and you could see in that headline that it it meant something and it could be figured into something that would give us a clue about when Jesus might come. And the reality is that this is what is described as coming next. It says he's, he's coming and we're waiting for it. Because in fact, what Paul describes here is really something that we use the term, the theological term, imminence to describe. When someone says something is imminent, that means it's about to happen. If, someone, if company texts and says, our arrival is imminent, you now know that if you are vacuuming or picking up or trying to pick up the kids' stuff, you better do it fast because they're about to arrive. They're going to be there at any moment. It's imminent. And so the, the idea of imminence in the New Testament is the idea that Jesus could return at any moment. There's, there's nothing that needs to precede his coming. We'll see this again in chapter 5 when it just speaks of the suddenness of these events. And so when Paul says in verse 15, we who are alive, he's talking present tense, we, we who are living, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is writing with a sense of imminence. He is believing and he is teaching these believers that Jesus Christ can come for his church at any moment. We're not waiting. We're not watching for something else to happen that that we are anticipating Christ. We are to be living that way. We are to be living with that expectation that Jesus could come for us suddenly at any moment, living with that excitement and that joy that Christ is coming for us. Even Jesus said his return would come suddenly when he's talking in the gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 24 he speaks of it as being a coming that will be at a day and time set by the father not known to anyone except the father he's emphasizing even there in Matthew 24 this will this will happen suddenly When Jesus returns for his people, it will be as described in verses 16 and 17. Descending from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead rising, and then those who are remaining alive, caught up together and reuniting with all of them. What's described here is, is what we would commonly call the rapture. This loud command, the sound of a trumpet, the bodies of deceased believers now coming up From the graves, joining the the souls, made new and joining those souls and caught up together with the living believers at that moment in the clouds. Dramatic event. This is what he teaches us to anticipate. This moment when the trumpet sounds and the command comes and the dead rise and the body of Christ is joined together. And verse 17 says, and so we will always be with the Lord. When Jesus returns, we will go to be with him forever. This is not some interim season, some temporary rest, some, some period of time. This is what for us is, even though we're, we don't ever stop existing, so we already have started out on eternity, but this is sort of the functional beginning of eternity for you and I. When we are now in the presence of Jesus, and, and we will be in that with him forevermore. What could be more encouraging to us than that hope? That that is what we have to look forward to, him returning and taking his people to be with him forever. One other piece from out of this section is the the basis of all of this. Back in verse 14, it said, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That all, all of the hope All of the anticipation, all of the expectation of the return of the Savior for us rests on for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The hope and the consolation of this passage is rooted squarely and entirely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are not believing that Jesus died and rose again, then you are described as those in verse 13 who have no hope. The contrast in verse 14 is, for since we believed. We are not as those without hope. We are those who believe in Jesus Christ. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, in his death for your sins, and in his resurrection to overcome that death, then then death for you is, is completely uncertain, at least in your minds. Scripture is very certain about what it is that you face. You face the judgment of God. You face the judgment of God for your sins because Jesus Christ died on the cross and you are not trusting in him. Then you stand in your sins and you are without hope. You remain in a place that is entirely worthy of grief because you are anticipating that consequential moment of death not knowing what happens next. And Scripture saying the warning from your creator is you will stand before him accountable. He is your judge, and you will be in your sins, and you will be condemned and judged. If you are trusting in him, he says, for sins, then we have this hope. We have everlasting life. If you have that, then we are commanded by God to comfort one another with these words. This, This teaching should fill our hearts with gladness and it should be on our lips we don't do that a lot I know I don't sometimes there's times even when I'm at, at hospital visits and and you feel like the person's in pain and they're they're sorrowing and 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 we forget sometimes to to remind them that There is hope. We are going to be with Christ. And even in this moment, that matters. That's what we've been given to have comfort. This is not all there is. This is a a season. Eternity will be spent with your Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are to take hope in that, and we are to comfort one another. Then he says, chapter 5, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Stop here. So we are to grow in pleasing God by specifically encouraging others with the truth of the return of Jesus Christ and now these truths about the day of the Lord and that encouragement should be both comfort as we've seen, but also caution. This this is a a passage that also deals with a a sober word of caution for believers. Remember again the the setting for the Thessalonians. Fairly new believers, new to understanding this doctrine. They are taught to expect the return of Jesus Christ. It's not happening. It's that that time of anticipation and and why isn't it happening and where is it? It's kind of like when you you say to a little one, we're going to King's Dominion. Ah, In like Six weeks. We, we put it on the calendar. Well, little kids, they're, they're not, you know, oh, okay, pull out the phone and I'll put it on my calendar and give myself a reminder. They're thinking, we're going to King's Dominion, so let's go. What, what are we waiting for? Why, why this period in between? So the Thessalonian believers have been taught Jesus is coming. Anticipate his return. Problem is now time is passing. Where is he? Some are dying. Persecution's happening. The world around us is acting like nothing's changed. Our lives have changed completely, and the world around us is just oblivious. In fact, they they actually hate us more. This doesn't make sense, and they're waiting, and they're suffering. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24 when he talks about the world at the time that he returns, and he compares it to the world in which Noah was. When Noah was building the ark in chapter 24, he says it will be similar. He says, "...for as in those days before the flood..." People were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The Thessalonian believers are immersed in this godless world that is saying stays just like yesterday. There's nothing different. We're not waiting for some grand event from God. It's just life. They're not seeing that with every moment they are drawing closer to standing accountable before the God of creation. They're just seeing it as life. It's just like today. Most people around us are not not living in anticipation of Jesus coming back. The, The world tends to mock that idea when we talk about Jesus returning. They think we're foolish for believing that, just like the world around Noah thought he was foolish in his day. And frankly, it can prove tempting for us. Because here we are, 2,000 years later, Jesus still has not returned, and we've got jobs and lives and pleasures and things to do and plans and stuff on the calendar, and we get caught up in in life and don't think often about the fact that Jesus Christ is returning. All sorts of stuff fills our time. It's easy to understand how, how one can spend days without ever thinking about eternity. Yeah, Jesus is coming. It could be in an instant, but... Look at my calendar. I've got stuff going on today. I've already got lots of plans, and, and all that is there. And, and Paul is, I, I think in this passage, as he's teaching about the day of the Lord, is seeking to shift their emphasis. Say, listen, you, you should live differently in light of all this, what, what's ahead. He talks in particular in verse 2 about this thing called the day of the Lord. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's not a new concept. He clearly had taught them something about it when he was with them, probably from the Old Testament prophets. From Isaiah on to the end of the Old Testament, there are frequent references to something called the Day of the Lord, a very specific discussion of Day of the Lord. In some cases, there was both a near and, and partial fulfillment of what that meant, and in many cases, it points forward to still something that has not been fulfilled. In the near sense, Babylon is an example. Because of what Babylon did to the Jewish people, God promised this judgment, this day of the Lord against them, and he brings the Assyrians in and he punishes Babylon, and they experience God's wrath. And so in some sense, they they experienced sort of a smaller version, if you will, of the day of the Lord. But what he's talking about frequently in the prophets is this widespread judgment against the unbelieving nations. Isaiah 13 describes it as a day accompanied by destruction from the Almighty and with wrath and fierce anger. Jeremiah 46.10, God would avenge himself on his foes and devour them with the sword in the day of the Lord. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, all speak to these repeated warnings of the day of the Lord that will come upon the nations, the unbelieving nations, and it will be a period of God. Pouring out his wrath against all who have rebelled against him. It will be a day of darkness. This is God bringing judgment. Remember that when Jesus Christ came, and the Gospel of John tells us he came as the light, and yet what did men do? Men love the darkness because they love the deeds of darkness, and so they keep gravitating toward the darkness. The warning here is this will be a day of darkness. In fact, in the book of Amos 5.18, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness and not light. It's a profound warning to say, you think that this day of the Lord is is something you don't have to worry about, that you should be unconcerned about? Woe to you because this will be a day when the world that has loved its sin will be repaid. ...for its sin, when God's judgment falls. In fact, Obadiah speaks of that. The prophet says, "...for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head." We believe, Scripture teaches clearly, that you are saved by grace through faith. Salvation comes by trusting in Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection, not by deeds. You and I could never do enough good because we are already sinners, and so we cannot be saved by our deeds... We are held accountable for our deeds if that's the way we decide to try to approach God as opposed to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why Obadiah says, your deeds are going to return on your head. If you are going to come to God as one who has been his enemy, who has rejected his salvation through his Messiah, then you and all of your deeds will stand before God and he will give you exactly what you deserve for them, which is condemnation because you have rejected him. And you will experience the wrath of God. So this day of the Lord theme is a day when the creator, the judge of all the earth, gives to mankind, un- the unbelieving world, what it deserves for its sin and rebellion. Isn't it great if you are trusting in Jesus Christ to know that we don't get what we deserve, that we get God's grace? Because of what Jesus Christ did, we are given mercy. And we don't have to stand there and, and, and be punished in our sins. Jesus Christ has taken that in our place. So Paul says, I have no need on this. Apparently, he had already done some teaching on this, and they understood some of this. The suddenness, he says, it will be like a thief in the night. We don't know when a thief in the night is coming. If we did, then we wouldn't have to worry about alarm systems and security and police because we know that the thief was scheduled to come tonight, so we'd lock everything and we'd tell the police ahead of time. But his point is, this will happen when you don't expect it. It will come with this kind of suddenness. In fact, he says in verse 3, it'll come at the time that the, the people are saying peace and security. It's so easy to see this kind of mentality in our world. The, the idea that it'll be fine. We can all get along. We're all good people. We can talk it out and we can have peace and, 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 and everything will be just safe and secure because after all, we're good people. And don't we love good things and peace, right? So you can see the world just falling into this, lulled, uh, lulled into this sort of sense of, it's all good. And God says at that moment, is his inescapable judgment will fall. Verse 2 illustrates the suddenness of the day. The pains of childbirth is designed to convey the inevitability of the day. It's, it's a picture of a normal pregnancy will inevitably culminate in labor pains. That, that it's hard to bypass that, that part of, of the pregnancy. And so what he's saying here is not only will it come suddenly... But just like labor pains are a sure culmination to pregnancy, so the day of the Lord is a sure thing. There, there won't be a chance to go, oh, no, wait a minute, I don't want to go through this. It will be inescapable. And so Paul then goes on. He says, verse 4 But you, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What a contrast Paul puts here. It's plain. There are those who are in darkness. Spiritually, it is as if they are asleep. When it comes to the knowledge of the holiness of God, they are oblivious to that. It is as if they are in a drunken stupor when it comes to acknowledging who Jesus Christ is and believing in him and trusting in him. And so they are in this spiritual state of darkness. They have dismissed God. They're not thinking about the possibility of his wrath. They are living for the moment, living for self. But you... Brothers, verse 4, you are not in darkness. We are of the light. Positively, that means we will not be caught in the day of the Lord. That's That's the hope of this passage, that when this day of God's wrath falls, you are not under that. You are not caught in God's wrath. Not only are you saved from the wrath of God against sin, but you're rescued from this wrath that is to come when God pours out his wrath on creation. Paul is not, and I said this at the beginning, I don't think Paul is looking to give us a line-by-line chronology of the end times, but I think it's entirely logical to see here a sense of order in Paul's writing, that he's already spoken of the fact that Jesus will come, And he will deliver you, he will take you to be his, and then he begins to talk about the day of God's judgment falling on the earth, that there is a rescue or a deliverance from that beforehand. So the Thessalonian Christians were not waiting, nothing in chapter 5 is telling them to wait for the day of the Lord and anticipate that as a sign. They've already been told, you wait for Jesus. He's coming for you. The unbelieving world will face the wrath of God in the day of the Lord. We will be taken to be with Jesus before God pours out his judgment on the nations. The intent, though, is not to just give them an escape plan. This isn't just meant to say, and so you're good, you're safe, you don't have to go through this. It, if that was it alone, we kind of fall into that same mentality we saw last week where they are struggling with their responsibility to work with their hands and pay their bills and, and some of the, the, the diligence that was lacking in them because of this attitude of, well, Jesus is coming, so I don't have to do anything. I just have to sit here and wait because at any moment, and I don't have to be responsible about life. And, and so he's already corrected that. And this is not meant here to be just a you're out of here, so don't sweat it kind of line. The greater application is And so, this is how you ought to live. Because he doesn't just say, you're not of the darkness, and you're spared from this. But he goes on and says, so then, we shouldn't sleep, verse 6. Let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and sober. We belong to the day. Be sober. He's saying to believers, listen, just because that doesn't await you, you should be living differently. You should be living as a person who sees the time short and sees these unbelievers headed racing, if if you will, to the judgment that they are doomed for, apart from Jesus Christ. You should be pursuing spiritual disciplines, diligence, disciplines, wakefulness, alertness, sobriety. You should live differently because you're in the light. Our lives should reflect different priorities. Our lives should be characterized by exactly what Paul has commended repeatedly in this book of 1 Thessalonians when he's talked about your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfast hope. Remember these things that he praises, right, in in the beginning in chapter 1, and he brings up again, and here it is again in verse 8. Since we belong to the day, be sober. Put on the breastplate of faith. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, that's the hope of salvation. He's bringing back those same themes. You live as somebody who is walking by faith in Christ. You love God and you love others uniquely as only you can do as a believer in Jesus Christ. You put on that helmet, which is the, the, what guards your mind so that when you face struggles and trials and temptations, there is this pervasive thought that says, Jesus is coming back for me. I belong to him. This is not all there is. This, this will pass. This pain This suffering, this hardship that I'm enduring, this temptation that I face, this is for a season. But ultimately, the helmet of the hope of salvation says, this is not all there is. I will stand before my Savior, and I will be with him forever. And he finishes then by saying, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are now doing. See, Paul, take it full circle. Where did we start? For since you believe that Jesus died and rose. Remember, it was the gospel. He's he's looking forward, return of Christ, day of the Lord, but he's rooting it all on the death of Christ and his resurrection. He's saying that's the foundation. Because of what happened there, this is good. This is sure. We can rest in this because of what Jesus has done. For God has not destined us for wrath, but salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us. Jesus already took God's wrath. We are not going to experience it because Jesus bore it in his body, in his flesh. And he has now given us that sure promise that whether we are alive to hear the trumpet and be called into his presence or whether we die before that happens, we are with the Lord. We are with him, and when he returns, we will be with him, and we will be reunited with our brothers and sisters in Christ in that moment. That is the heart of all the encouragement in this passage. The heart is the gospel. That's how we encourage people. We encourage them with the coming of Christ, but that is no hope if they are not first knowing that Jesus Christ died and that he rose again, and in that is where your faith must rest. We can live with spiritual alertness and grow in faith, and hope, and love, knowing that whatever happens to our bodies, we have this promise of a glorious appearing of our Savior to be with him forever. And his message here is speak about these things. Don't shy away from talking about the return of Christ. Don't act like it's not ever going to happen. Encourage one another with this. I had a friend when we lived in Alaska. Every time. I, I think I can, I can almost safely say every time we talked about planning something that was in the future, at some point during the conversation, he would, in a very sound and serious way, say, Jesus is coming back. And I remember the first couple times when we talked about planning some event. I think he was helping us with the youth ministry, I think, at that point, And we would plan something for a month away, and he'd say, oh, by the way, Jesus is coming back. And you kind of thought, oh, okay, that's he's being funny. And and, and then you came to realize when he did it all the time, this was his way of of, of bringing up exactly what Paul's doing here and saying, yes, sure, plan, plan, be wise, take steps, do the things we need to do, serve God, glorify him, but never forget, Jesus is coming back. It could all change in a moment. All of those plans could be long gone, and we could be with the Lord forever. That that just became so wonderfully encouraging to me. Uh, Encourage one another. When fellow believers are grieving... When they are hurting, when life is hard, when struggles are real, when temptations keep trying to draw us away from him, that is when we need to be encouraging and exhorting and comforting and cautioning and reminding Jesus is coming back. Our Savior is coming for us and we will be with him always. We have a living Savior who died for us and who rose and who one day will return to bring us into his presence. So take some wise risks. You know, what can I do for Christ? What can I venture wisely out and and, and take some steps that that may not, from the world's sense, make all of the pragmatic, logical sense? Take some wise risks. Stand firm when when the world is trying to push you to, to cave on your principles, when your job is challenging you to compromise. Stand firm because this is, This is not all there is. It's not all about the job in this moment. I will be with Christ soon, imminently. Live boldly for him. Encourage each other for him. Sacrifice for the sake of his glory. This this, this is all, it's wonderful what God has surrounded us with, but it's going away. And one day we will be with Jesus forever. Treat today as if this is the one when the trumpet sounds, and we are in his presence forever. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning or perhaps watching us on Facebook, um, Lord, I I pray that today, if they are not trusting in Jesus Christ, then I pray that you would graciously bring them to see the Savior Jesus. Lord, we, we see in this passage again and again the emphasis on on the fact that Jesus died and rose again, and therein lies our hope. So if there is anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ, today would you be gracious to call them to believe in Jesus as Savior, to believe that he died and and took the punishment we deserve for sin? Would you bring them from that place of of utter hopelessness, of grief at facing death, That is the grief of the unknown, at least it seems that way. That is the fear that comes with not not knowing what lies after that last breath. Lord, might you bring them today to know with certainty that there is a God who is a holy judge, but who has sent his Son to be the perfect, sinless Redeemer. Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for taking us again to these truths, just as the Thessalonians needed them 2,000 years ago. We desperately need to be reminded that we are here for a short time, but that our, our hope is fixed in eternity. There is laid up for us a place that you have prepared to be with you forever. Thank you for that great hope in Christ. Father, help us to use this period of time that we have, not knowing how brief it might be. Help us to be diligent and awake and alert and sober and effective to to serve you and to see our moments as moments that you've you've stewarded to us to use well. Lord, for, for us deeply and sincerely as we long for Jesus to come for us, Lord, we know loved ones who don't know you. And we pray that we would use our time well, that we would call them to faith, and that we would plead with you to save them in the time that we have. Cause us to be faithful stewards, anticipating with joy the great reunion with the saints who've gone before mostly with our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.